Hello, Spotlight friends. Welcome to another episode of Ave Spotlight. Today, we are with my friend, Father Blake Britton, the Diocese of Orlando. So excited to have another Orlandoan here. Thank you so much for being with us, Father Blake. Thank you. It's always great to be with someone from O-Town as well. <laughs> yes, we get it. We get it. We it do. Is, it, is, it is right now. I think it's like 80 degrees outside. So maybe after this, I'll go stand outside. So it stopped being oppressively hot. And now it's like beautifully chilly in the morning and then like nice in the afternoon. So we're in that like two months of Florida where it's really nice until it becomes 30 degrees. And then it's like horrible again. Right, yeah. So. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> like, it's so true. I'll count like, my blessings. Yeah. The state of Florida is so extreme in its changes of seasons. And then, of course, you have your your two seasons, which are hot and hotter. Um. <laughs> yes. Amen. And then during the winter, you're like, oh, man, I'm so cold. Like, right. I really shouldn't have not complained when it's hot. And then it's springtime. And I'm like, man, where is my Claritin? I hate this. I guess we over here can just like never be happy. But this summer, I don't think I have ever been that hot in my life. I think it was easily three million degrees this summer. At at one point I went in my car and the temperature thing was said like 110. So I am I'm happy that it's like 64 now in the morning. It's beautiful. And you're right. We're so spoiled because like I'm on the yeah. beach with a margarita. I'm like, oh, I hate living in Florida. It's so horrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, exactly. It's January exactly. And I'm having a pina colada on the beach. Exactly. And, like, and I'm like, me- exactly. Meanwhile, <laughs> people that, yeah, people that are completely landlocked are like, right. oh my gosh, what are you even talking about? But yes, we are so blessed to live here. And I'm so happy that you're on today. Father Blake, I'm sure a lot of people listening have already heard your previous episode with mm-hmm. us, but I would love for our new listeners to know a little bit about you. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, not at all. Not at all. So again, Father Blake Britton, Diocese of Orlando. I'm currently a parochial vicar at four parishes. So as we know, unfortunately, with uh, part of the priest shortages, we've had to be creative in our way of providing for pastoral ministry. And, and we're very blessed in Florida, again, because we're not shrinking in Catholic population. We're actually growing in Catholic population. The issue is that we don't have enough priests to keep up with the growth. And so we're trying to find creative and ingenious ways to, to approach that pastoral reality. But parochial vicar of four parishes. And then also, by God's grace, I'm associated with both Ave Maria Press and Word on Fire as a published author, speaker, theologian. And I'm able to commentate and to publish various articles on topics that are relevant to the church, to evangelization, to millennial culture. And finally, the Lord has allowed me the gift of writing a book called Reclaiming Vatican II, which has also gotten a lot of traction in this past year. And I'm looking forward to seeing how the Lord continues to bear fruit in that direction. That's wonderful. You are doing good work, Padre. And thank you. I heard something in there that really piqued my interest before I start, you know, hitting you with the hard hidden questions about Vatican <laughs> sure. II. I heard in your little intro that you were saying that you really speak to the millennial audience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talk to many people and they say like, gosh, you know, in 40 years, they pray that millennials will like continue to come to mass and have a relationship with the Lord and really live out their Catholic faith in a way that's beautiful and vibrant, as well as our like Gen Z, you know, little peers. And so I'm just curious about what you think. Like, how do you think the spiritual lives of people that are millennial and that are Gen Z, how do you, what do you foresee in that? What are your hopes for people in those categories? Yeah, great question. So I would place this within two categories. Those Mm -hmm. who are uncatechized 
and go through the motions of the faith or who were raised in secular homes, unfortunately, will probably be outside of the church for some time until they wake up and realize that they need the church. So that's one dynamic that I deal with a lot as a parish priest, people who come into the confessional from the baby boomer or the Gen X generation, and they're like, Father, forgive me for I've sinned. It's been 40 years since my last confession, and I was such a fool to leave the church 40 years ago. And unfortunately, mm. you'll always have sort of that dynamic in the church. But at the same time, the Lord gives that beautiful parable that no matter what time you come to work in the vineyard, he gives you the same wages, which of course the wages being salvation. So no matter when you convert, Christ is always willing in his divine mercy to embrace us. However, what's going to be unique about the millennial and the Zoomer generation, the Gen Zs, is that we are the first ever generation of human beings in world history, not like in American history, I'm talking the history of planet Earth, to be raised in an atheistic secular culture, a purely scientific culture. What I mean by that is we're the first generation of human beings to be raised in a culture in which religiosity is not the norm mm. and is rather the exception. Even the ancient Greeks and Romans, pagan religiosity was the norm. It was abnormal not to be religious. That's something that was ingrained within their psyche. What will be the consequences of that action? Well, since we're raised in that dynamic, when we come to faith, it's legit. Like when we come to faith, it's for real. If we're going to go to mass, it's because we really believe this. And there may be mm. fewer of us who are going to mass, but the ones who are there are rock solid. And I've been really inspired by that as a priest. And I think that's going to be indicative of the entire millennial generation. You're going to have a much smaller church, but that church is going to be rock solid in their faith. They're going to be highly educated, very well catechized. They're going to be rooted in the tradition and orthodoxy of the church, and they're going to be highly apostolic and evangelical as well. There's going to be this zeal inside in the, that we haven't really seen in the past 60 years. So that, in that regards, I'm actually quite hopeful. And I think it's, it's healthy in, in other ways to have this trimming down, if you will. And I'd rather have five lions than 100 sheep, so to speak, as the, as the great generals say. It, it's mm. more important to have this, this ferocious zeal within our desire for holiness than it is to be lukewarm and go through the motions. So overall, I'm very hope-filled, and I think it's going to end up being an incredibly influential generation in church history. Mm, I love that. Yes. Thank you for the hope. Sometimes you hear from people, I was talking with someone and they were sharing with me that even in the Diocese of Sydney, Australia, they went from, I think, 200 parishes to like 60 missions. Mm -hmm. And now they don't even have parishes anymore mm -hmm. because it's a, com a completely secular country. And so it's, it's sometimes it's scary to think about, oh gosh, like what is the future of the church? Like, right. is there any hope for us? I mean, I know that things are hard, you know, financially and then spiritually, and then just kind of living in such a you know, highly entertainment filled culture, it's hard to feel like, man, are we actually going to sustain this? So it's nice to know that there, there are people out there that believe that the church will not completely die off. So, Oh, not at um, all. Not yeah. at all. Remember Jesus started with 12. He didn't do too bad, you know? Mm, and, and yeah. So, amen. That's a word. And, That's and a so, word. And so for us as well, we really, really got to have hope. We got to have hope. And, and like I said, as a priest, I've seen nothing but science for hope. Numbers have nothing to do with Catholicism. We've never been a church of quantitative. We're more qualitative. So what we really care about is the seminal foundations of the faith as opposed to the number of people who are following it. So that's important mm. for us, I think, also to refocus ourselves. And if that means we only have two, three, four faithful disciples in our parish, praise be Jesus Christ, and we can sanctify the world with those people. 
Mm, that's a word. Thank you so much for of that. Course. Yes. Yeah. And speaking when you were talking, you mentioned that the generation that of millennials now, when they're older, will probably be very evangelical, right? And we right. talk about evangelizing. And I think when people hear evangelical and they hear evangelization, it's kind of like ding, 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 kind of trigger words of like, wait, what are you trying to say? Right. I, You're trying to ask me to dilute, you know, truths, or mm-hmm. you're asking me to make sure everyone has happy feelings. And you're not really asking me to, you know, bring to truth and justice to, you know, catechism or whatever it is. And I think that there's a severe misunderstanding there, which is such a shame because right. we know in, you know, in many church documents, they say like the church's primary mission is to evangelize. Like mm-hmm. that's her identity and her first task and main task is to evangelize. So when I think about Vatican II, especially much of it was kind of this from, you know, what I've learned about it, much of this was like just teaching us how to evangelize and how to reach people that we might not have reached otherwise. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately at the time it was kind of skewed and then now it became this thing where everyone's confused. But, you know, on the 60th anniversary now of Vatican II, how would you say that people look at what we've of what we've been given? Like, what are the common misunderstandings that you may hear? For yeah. me, I know it was primarily about liturgy, which I know you mentioned, which I know I mentioned to you before we started recording. Mm-hmm. That was the primary thing that people seem to, you know, be a little confused about. And evangelization. I think that there's still a little bit of confusion there. But mm-hmm. for you, what would you what would you see is like probably the thing that people are most confused about? Right. The nature of the church and how she organically develops in history. That's mm. actually what people are most confused about because this leads to a bunch of d- different issues. The fact that we have to first and foremost understand Vatican II is not just a way of articulating dogma that's different. It's not just that a bunch of bishops got together and say, hey, we got to do new stuff. In the end, it was a change in the disposition of the church through a reading of the signs of the times of what is necessary to continue the mission of the gospel in the third millennium. Mm. It was a a development within the life of the church who is a living organism, who grows, who matures, who deepens in her understanding. It was this development in the life of the church to say, now we've entered into a post-Christian era, which demands a different kind of approach to society and to the Mm. trends of civilization. If we are able to understand that fact, then it allows us the freedom to dynamically enter into a dialogue with the reality of the church. But if our understanding of the church is stagnant, our understanding of the church is strictly sort of magisterial in the sense of only being focused on the precepts and the teachings and not seeing them as something that develops in history, then we're not able to authentically approach the reality of Vatican II. So let's narrow that down and bring it into some focus. There's a lot of confusion, for example, with why did the Second Vatican Council ask for reforms in the liturgy? Hmm. That reform in the liturgy, by the way, was not something that fell out of the sky, but it represents over 150 years of theological and liturgical development that was taking place since the Restoration Movement began, which was this rediscovery of biblical, patristic, and liturgical text from the first going up to the 10th, 11th centuries AD. And so this led to an understanding that The liturgy, if it is to speak to the world in its current state now, if the liturgy is to form and shape the minds and hearts of the faithful in the third millennium, it must speak in a new form. 
Now, that doesn't mean that it changes the essential nature of the liturgy, which is always the adoration of the Father through the Son, by the grace of the Spirit, specifically in the manifestation of the sacred species, so the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And there are elements of that institution which are unchangeable. Take this all of you and eat of it. Take this all of you and drink of it. The epiclesis, the way in which we summon the Spirit. There, there are elements of the Mass that always have to be part of the Mass. But the form in which the Mass takes throughout the ages always varies in relation to what the population needs in order to understand the gospel, what will speak to them essentially. We see that, of course, even with the Council of Trent. The purpose of the reform of the Council of Trent was twofold when it came to the liturgy under St. Pius V. The first was to sort of bring in the reins, because in the medieval period, so we're talking 10th, 11th, 12th century specifically, during that period, you had a bunch of different ways of celebrating the Mass, a, a bunch of variations mm. that were um, part of regions, whether you were in Francia and France or, or England or what have you. So there needed to be this unification, if you will, to the form and expression of the Latin rite of the liturgy, but also it became a highly structured liturgy as a means of evangelization contra Protestantism. And this is why the Trinidine Mass, or what's popularly called the traditional Latin Mass, has so many signs and symbols, so hyper-theological. And I don't say that as a bashing thing. I think it's profound sure. and beautiful. I absolutely love the extraordinary form of the liturgy. It's magnificent. But the emphasis of the extraordinary form is this hyper-mysticism, is this hyper-theological emphasis, because they want it to speak against the heresy of Protestantism, the iconoclasm of Protestantism, etc. Well, now we're living in a post-Christian era where the fundamental tenets of the faith are no longer properly understood. And so the liturgy needs to take on a form in which it can bring an uncatechized generation into a liturgical experience. And this, the church discerned, is more appropriate to the more apostolic expression of the liturgy. So if you look at the St. Paul VI Missal, which is what we usually, usually use on Sunday Mass, it is much more faithful to the original apostolic liturgies it's actually a very ancient form of liturgy from 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century AD, going back to the missals of St. Peter and of St. James. So you'll see elements from that in our contemporary liturgy. It's a very monastic form of liturgy in its simplicity, which was a precept of the Second Vatican Council, the noble simplicity. Granted, there are elements that are not done properly on mass mm. throughout the church, mm -hmm. which we also need to focus on. And that's something I bring up without any sort of a shame in my book that we're not at the ideal of Vatican II yet in regards to the liturgy. And that's, uh, and that's the final point I'll go to. That's okay. Why is it okay? If you go throughout history, let's just take the council of Trent. It took about 75 years, really over a hundred years. If you look at the grand picture, in order for the precepts, the teaching, the theological milieu of the Council of Trent to take full effect. That's because the church is progressing in history. That's because the church is living, she's being embodied. And you're not gonna have a switch at the snap of your fingers between one generation and another. It will take typically three to four generations at least for the first wave of proper implementation to take place. So mm -hmm. with this 60th anniversary, we're right on the cusp of that Goldilocks window, if you will, that, that time period in which we've gone through experimentation, we've gone through liturgical abuses and theological and catechetical abuses. We've also gone through liturgical graces and catechetical graces. Let me, let's not forget that World Youth Day would be impossible without the Second Vatican Council. So there's some amazing things that have happened since Vatican II, which can only take place because of the reforms of the council that we also need to appreciate, but they're often eclipsed by the so-called liturgy wars. But we're in this time period in which we've 
learned from the past six decades. We've seen what works, what doesn't work. And now it's time to start moving the pendulum in the right direction of mediation between the extremes and this proper implementation of the vision of Vatican II. I'm very excited as a millennial and also as Zoomers because we're going to be the first generation to see the full fruits of the Second Vatican Council. It's going to happen right towards the end of my life, more or less, but it's really going to be the, the Zoomers and their children who see the full fruits of Vatican II take fruition. Wow, that is such an exciting thing to look forward to. And thank you so much for sharing. I, I love what you said just about the highest, uh, what is the word, uh, traditional Latin mass, um, really speaking to, you know, Protestantism and being so filled with so many wonderful things, but mm -hmm. because they had to, like they had to really over explain because, right. you know, it wasn't being explained and it was being misinterpreted. And I love what you said about really, you know, the contemporary mass is speaking more to the apostolic mission of the church, mm -hmm. which which is so contrary to what everyone says. Right. <laughs> so right. it's such an interesting thing to hear you say that because it's like, wow, nobody says that. Everyone says that the contemporary mass, or many people say that the contemporary mass really doesn't speak to the mission of the church. It's kind of diluting the nature of how beautiful and rich the right. liturgy is. Right. And so that's such a like, that's such a profound thing to say, really something I'm going to keep with me. But I just think that's so interesting. I I feel like as a priest, how do you, how what is your experience um, with the liturgy and just kind of you probably celebrated it in different ways mm -hmm. and you know just bringing people to under so I guess to bring in my question, what is your experience with bringing people in to understanding just the beauty of how the Lord wants us to encounter Him in the liturgy? And it can happen in different ways Yeah, because I love what you shared. The sacred liturgy is the primary pastoral responsibility of the priesthood. Hmm. Before we do anything else, before we open up soup kitchens, before we preach outside the walls, before we have youth groups, before we do anything else, if the liturgy is not done beautifully, reverently, and piously, go home, go home. Hmm. And so my experience with the priesthood has been as follows. As I've prioritized the dignity and sanctity of the liturgy in obedience to the rubrics and teachings of the Second Vatican Council, as I've integrated those rubrics and teachings within my own pastoral directives, within my own heart and soul, within my own personal spirituality and devotion and discipleship with Jesus Christ, what I've seen is a blossoming of Catholicism around the sacramental life of the church. See, mm -hmm. Jesus establishes through his incarnation, and then also the immediate community around that incarnation, the Blessed Mother, the 12 apostles, and their successors, he constitutes within that community the infrastructure of sanctity, what we call a systematic structure of grace. St. John Paul II refers to it. In other words, there's this whole system, there's this whole infrastructure of grace around which we're able to build the foundations of an authentic spiritual life. At the very center of that, according to Vatican II, is the sacred liturgy. And the sacred liturgy wouldn't tell not just the mass, but all sacramental activities. So how do I hear confessions? How do I anoint the sick? How do I celebrate confirmations? How do I receive the newly initiated at, at baptism at the Easter vigil? The way in which all these things are done, the sights, the sounds, the symbols, the smells, the, the sermons, all these things are the premier catechetical tool of the church. And if you had a priest who literally only celebrated beautiful masses, we'd be fine we'd be wow. fine. That would save the church universally. Mm. 
uh, that mm. would sanctify the church. And I don't mean save as if she's not saved. Jesus already saved her, of course. But, mm. <laughs> but I mean, on a more practical level, as far as the third sure. millennium and this lack of catechesis or lack of devotion, it would very much save the church. That is, as Pope Benedict XVI says very clearly, the premier catechetical tool of the presbyterate is the sacred liturgy. Now, flowing out of that, of course, naturally, you'll have this organic development of extracurricular pastoral activities. So what's really amazing is that when the sacramental life of a community, as Vatican II says, is firmly rooted, then the evangelical, then the social justice, then the charity, whatever it may be, it flows out of that naturally because the heart is rooted in the right place. But if our heart is not rooted in the Eucharist, we may be very social justice oriented or very hospi- you know, uh, hospitable or we're very mm-hmm. administratively and financially successful. But you can have a parish with a million dollars in the bank, but no souls in heaven. You know, there's, there's yes. and that's a really, really not, not a good balance to have. So our mm. first priority is the sanctification, the sanctification of God's people through the work of the son. And what is the work of the son? The right worship and adoration of the father. This is the whole point of the incarnation. This is why Jesus gives us the Eucharist before his crucifixion at the Last Supper. This is why the first thing he does after crucifixion is give the ability to forgive sins after breathing on his apostles and then also breaks bread with the people on the road to Emmaus. So all these are signs constantly. And St. Paul will refer to it in his letter to to the Corinthians with the breaking of the bread, the handing on the traditions, St. Peter about the Eucharist, St. James, over and over. And you see this laced throughout the scriptures the centrality of the liturgy, because our religion in the end is not a religion of the book. And it's not a religion of philosophy or ideas. Our religion is a religion of the Christ. It has to be touched. Catholicism can only be true if it touches you and you touch it back. Catholicism Mm -hmm. can only be true if you're able to feel it, if it's able to to incarnate itself inside of you. If If it's just a set of teachings, it can't be real for you. This is Pope Francis's whole wheelhouse constantly. When he talks about the, the the reality of the faith, this art of accompaniment is the way that he phrases it. And sometimes that's dumbed down to mean like, oh, just accept people where they are and let them do whatever <laughs> they want. I'm like, no, Pope mm. Francis is not saying that. What Pope Francis mm. is talking about is the way that Christ interacts with history and the fact that the Lord does meet people where they're at, but it doesn't mean that he keeps them where they are. He met Matthew, the apostle where he was at, the customs post, illegally collecting taxes and usurping the people. And then he brought him to become a saint and a martyr of the church. So you see that in this art of accompaniment. So all that to say, as a priest, I cannot overemphasize and I cannot say enough the centrality and the non-negotiability of the sacred liturgy, that it it is Mm -hmm. something which we absolutely cannot compromise in any way, shape, or form. And the proper implementation of Vatican II does begin with the sacred liturgy. My goodness. Okay, well, if that does not... make you want to go to mass, everyone listening. That makes me want to pray and go to my adoration chapel down the street. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that, Father Blake. I I mean, I would love, you should pray about doing an audio book or something. I would just love to hear you talk (laughs) for for much more time than this short podcast allows. But where can we hear, you know, find out more about you um, and hear more about what you're doing? Yeah. So the most practical ways through Facebook and Instagram, you just look up mm-hmm. Father Blake Britton and I post on there a lot. We provide 
books of the month. We provide, you know, reviews. I do a lot of live feeds for question and answers, you know, rosaries. And also I update any new things or projects that I'm working on. So that's the easiest way. Of course, the, my book, Reclaiming Vatican II. So you can get that through Avramir Press or Word on Fire Press. And recently, we just published a study guide to accompany Reclaiming Vatican II, which I'm very happy about. And it was done by popular demand. A lot of parishes, dioceses, seminaries, et cetera, reached out to Avramir Press and asked them to put together the study guide uh, to accompany, especially the 60th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council, which we're celebrating mm. this year. And I'll end with this. I am going to encourage every single listener here If you want to do a spiritual work for this year in your life, we should always have one spiritual work that we want to do, meaning one way that we are actively striving and struggling for holiness in our intellectual formation. Read the four major documents of Vatican II. Do that in honor of the Second Vatican Council. The 60th anniversary is this year, October the 11th, it begins. So from October 11th, 2022 to October 11th, 2023, make it a priority to read the four major documents of the Second Vatican Council. I'm not going to tell you to buy my book as an as a spiritual act. Okay, <laughs> that would be shameless promotion. <laughs> but I will say, definitely read the four major documents of Vatican II. Make that your your spiritual work for the 2022-2023 60th anniversary. Hmm. Thank you so much, Padre, for everything we loved. I loved listening to you, and I'm sure we, as many listeners, will love hearing what you shared today. Um, I'm excited to read your book again. I've already read it, but I really enjoyed it. And that's a good idea to really make a spiritual work to be more intentional about forming my intellectual mind. So, (laughs) and maybe putting down the remote, I can watch The Office later. So, so that's, you have far better ideas, but thank you so much, Father, for being with us. And we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you as well. God bless you all. You too. Thank you so much for Father Blake for being with us today. And um, thank you so much for listening, you guys. I love doing these interviews and I'm looking forward to next week. Please be sure to check out Father Blake's book, Reclaiming Vatican II, as well as the study guide on AveMariaPress.com. It's a really great read and super, super interesting. I never in my life post-college thought that I would for fun be reading about Vatican II, but it's a super intriguing read um, and it is, you know, um, great content. So great for all of us to know more about. So I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. I look forward to talking with you guys in two weeks. God bless. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.